0: Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am honored to welcome my guest, Ms. Colleen Webb. She is a fellow registered dietitian, only she specializes in gastrointestinal disorders. She currently works in New York City at Weill Cornell Medicine in the Department of Gastroenterology and Hepatology, where she provides nutritional counseling to patients with complicated GI conditions. She also hosts an annual nutrition course for the Cornell medical students. She has her own private practice in GI nutrition and she writes a blog titled eatforyears.com and we'll provide a link to that. Colleen speaks regularly on a wide variety of topics related to nutrition and gut health, and she is currently a co-investigator on numerous trials focusing on how dietary and lifestyle modifications and behavioral changes can alter chronic inflammation, the gut microbiome, perceived symptoms, and overall quality of life. Welcome, Colleen.
1: Thank you, Melinda, and thank you for that kind introduction. Well, I heard you
0: speak at the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics Annual Conference in Boston this past fall, and I was so impressed with your breadth of knowledge and your ability to truly help people feel well that I knew I wanted to have you on the program. My first question is, how did you become interested in this particular specialty?
1: It's actually kind of funny. So I ended up falling into GI So Nutrition is a second career for me. I actually was working in advertising and I knew after a few years there that I definitely wanted to pursue nutrition. My mother's a nurse. I really enjoyed the medical field and I did my internship program. I really didn't even work too much with people with gastrointestinal issues and I happened to live near Cornell Medical Center and I applied for a job at the Inflammatory Bowel Disease Center and was so impressed with the director and the physician there and it kind of fell into it as the center's first nutritionist, and Melinda, I'm just so happy that I did because now I wouldn't want to be anywhere else i'm I'm just so fascinated with g i especially with all of the evolving research about the gut microbiome and and certainly how so many of these diseases really do begin in the gut so it was all by luck, mhm, that's so often is the case, right? Serendipity
0: is our best friend oftentimes, well, you know. <laughs> I have to tell you that I have been practicing in this field of dietetics since about 1980, and you are a younger dietitian. and we were talking before the show about how my normal, from what I remember decades ago, is different from the new normal that you see every day in your clinical practice. And I wonder if you have any... Sorry for this term, but I have to use it. If you have any gut feelings about (laughs) why we have seen such a drastic increase in gastrointestinal disorders over the past decade or two.
1: Yeah, so I have a few different theories there, and, and maybe bits of all of them make some sense here. But I think, for one, maybe just some better diagnostic tools. I also think that people are getting more and more comfortable talking about these relatively sensitive issues. And I also strongly suspect, as many very smart researchers do, that there is really something in our environment and, and very likely in our food supply. Perhaps it's due to our increased consumption of all of these heavily processed foods and not consuming as many fruits and vegetables. But I think the answer probably lies in the combination of all of these different factors.
0: Yeah, there are so many different environmental variables to tease out that it becomes increasingly challenging, but I thought what we could do is talk about some of the specific GI conditions that you deal with and maybe give us a brief overview and compare and contrast what they are. So I know that you are specialized to talk to people about Crohn's disease, colitis, irritable bowel syndrome and small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, or something we called SIBO for short, mm-hmm. diverticulosis, constipation, diarrhea, food sensitivities, et cetera. But let's start with the ones that are probably most common. What is the difference, for example, between inflammatory bowel disease and irritable bowel?
1: Yeah, excellent. And it's such a great question because these terms, even among patients with IBD or IBS and, and also among some Healthcare providers, too, often we get a little confused about them. So thank you for bringing that up. So with inflammatory bowel disease, I mean, the two principal categories really are Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. And both of those are chronic inflammatory conditions of the gastrointestinal tract. They are both autoimmune conditions. And Crohn's disease can affect anywhere from the mouth all the way to the very bottom. And ulcerative colitis is limited to the large intestine. Whereas irritable bowel syndrome... Irritable bowel syndrome is not an autoimmune disease, and it's it's probably even less well understood. It is it is certainly a gastrointestinal disorder. It is functional in nature. So in other words, sometimes people might be a little more sensitive to the normal contractions and distension of the bowel. And I think, Melinda, as we learn more and more about the gut microbiota, and post-infectious irritable bowel syndrome will start to have a better idea of, of really what is the underlying contributing factor or factors for IBS. But very often the symptoms of both IBS and IBD, they do overlap. And in fact, there's a very strong overlap just even among those two conditions. So people who have inflammatory bowel disease are more likely to have irritable bowel syndrome. And people who have irritable bowel syndrome are very likely to have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So we have to, keep in mind that these things often occur together in a person.
0: Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or SIBO because I was curious, I was reading one of the blogs that you had written about this particular topic and I had no idea how many people are affected with this. You write that more than 80% of people with IBS or irritable bowel syndrome are estimated to have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, which is a major contributor to IBS. How do people develop small intestinal bacterial overgrowth?
1: that's something that researchers are also trying to work very hard in figuring out but there's all kinds of different things that we know can contribute to small intestinal bacterial overgrowth i mean i think starting with any real assault on the gut microbiota or so all of those microbes that live inside of us and so we'll often see people present with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth after they have undergone courses of antibiotics for example now dr mark pimentel who's a gastroenterologist at Cedars-Sinai in the west coast he and his team are conducting quite a bit of research on the causes of SIBO and feel very strongly too that perhaps episodes of food poisoning can actually trigger a change in the motility of the gastrointestinal tract which then can therefore also contribute to that small intestinal bacterial overgrowth because what tends to happen is that it's the commensal microbes from the colon so any time that we're really talking about the gut microbiota and all of these these microbes, mostly bacteria, that live inside of us, we're really talking about the ones that live inside the large intestine. Mm-hmm. But for a number of different reasons, those microbes can migrate to the small intestine, whether it is post-antibiotics or perhaps a change in the GI motility, possibly secondary to an episode of food poisoning or another infection. Um, But any kind of motility issue, then, you have to figure, can also result in small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, as can malabsorption of nutrients. Because then, figure, the the types of microbes that really like to move from the large bowel into the small bowel are these anaerobic sugar-loving microbes. So in situations where people may be malabsorbing or maldigesting, like in undiagnosed celiac disease or perhaps Crohn's disease of the small intestine, And you have to figure, too, there's a lot more of these substrates or these carbohydrates or these sugars for these bacteria, and then the bacteria migrate um, because they they love that kind of stuff. So all kinds of different things, really, that could be contributing to SIBO. Mm
0: -hmm. I was very interested with your blog post in which you talk about what some of the triggers are. With food poisoning being a major one, I can't tell you how many people I have known personally who have had about a foodborne illness and who have said, you know, ever since I had that foodborne illness, my gut has just not been the same.
1: Mm-hmm. It's amazing, isn't
0: it? Yeah. So what are the treatments for SIBO?
1: The typical algorithm for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth really is to begin with a course of zyfaxin or Rifaximin, which is a non-absorbed antibiotic that's really targeting those particular microbes. But diet plays a huge role too. So I think what tends to happen is people go on the zyfaxin and then that's it. And then they wonder why they're relapsing later on. Anytime somebody's told, hey, you have SIBO, ideally they would be told, hey, you have SIBO because you have such and such. And then that such and such is, is really what's addressed. But of course, we're not quite there yet. But in many cases, diet can play a huge role in helping with SIBO. So often after that course of the rifaximin or the zyfaxin, then we'll have to meet with the patient again to figure out, okay, how do we use food, nutrition, how do we use supplements like probiotics to now restore all of the positive, wonderful, beneficial bacteria while healing the gut?
0: Mm -hmm. So when you talk about carbohydrates, You know, there were so many sessions about the microbiome at our conference. And one of the take-home, well, two take-home messages that I received were that, A, simple sugars are not the gut's friend. The microbes really like fiber. And so there was a low-sugar, high-fiber message to help nourish the good bacteria in our guts. And yet one of the things that I see listed here is that when somebody is suffering with SIBO that they need to follow a carbohydrate-restricted diet. Tell me what you mean by that.
1: Sure. So usually when we are modifying the diet to directly affect the the microbes, it's typically through modifying carbohydrates. And so there are a few different approaches. The low FODMAP diet, for example, has been wonderful for both addressing symptoms with irritable bowel syndrome, but also with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, and perhaps it is because of that strong overlap with the two conditions. So with low FODMAPs, what happens is we go ahead and for a short period of time, we remove some of those carbohydrates that are really gas-producing. So FODMAPs, just an acronym for very fermentable, very gas-producing, poorly absorbed carbohydrates. And in doing so, we can really help to manage some of those undesired symptoms like gas and bloating that come from the microbes feeding on those FODMAPs. Another approach, though, is something called a specific carbohydrate diet, where a lot of the FODMAPs, especially those from fruits and vegetables, are still allowed in the diet. But instead what happens is that we remove the complex carbohydrates that actually rely on the brush border enzymes. So I'm just going to take a little step back here, talk just a little bit even about digestion, So we have tools to help break our food down, including enzymes that in our mouth are from our pancreas and our stomach. But then we also have enzymes on the small intestine. And what tends to happen with bacterial overgrowth in certain people is that those enzymes on the small bowel, those brush border enzymes to help complete that final stage of digesting complex carbs like rice, for example, or other grains, they can become inactivated. And so then those foods can go malabsorbed. So, really, I would say the specific carbohydrate diet and the low FODMAP diet are two of the most popular approaches to small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. But I also want to touch on fiber for a second, Melinda, because you're absolutely right. There was a lot of focus on recommending people consume a lot of wonderful fibrous foods to promote the growth of those microbes in the large intestine. And that's typically what we do recommend, although Dr. Mark Pimentel, who I did mention earlier, he often will do what's called a low fermentation diet for helping to minimize the symptoms of small intestinal bacterial liver growth. And what he means by that is actually reducing some of those, those fibrous foods that often can, can cause some fermentation in the small bowel as well.
0: Mm. You mentioned probiotics. Are there certain probiotics that you recommend across the board, or are you finding that every individual responds differently and it's more or less try this one, see if it helps, if not, try another one?
1: Yes and yes. (laughs) So with the probiotics, there definitely are probiotics that are studied for certain conditions. So for example, for somebody with ulcerative colitis, there's some pretty decent research to support the use of a multi-strain probiotic called VSL. So for somebody with ulcerative colitis, perhaps I'd want to start there. But then there are other probiotics that are studied specifically for helping to reduce the side effects associated with taking antibiotics and also to help reduce one's risk of developing the infection clostridium difficile, which can occur when people are on the certain antibiotics. So in those cases, I would recommend something like a florist or a culturel. And then with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, ah, the verdict is kind of out whether or not we want to be recommending probiotics or not. And in those situations, when we do, I'll typically go with more of a florist probiotic uh, as well, which is actually a yeast-based probiotic. But then there's a lot of people who don't always fit those criteria either. I mean, I've had patients who I would not have thought would have responded very well to a certain probiotic who do respond really well to that probiotic. So I think as of right now, it's still very much of a guessing game with these probiotics anecdotally, they seem to help a lot of people. Uh, The good news is usually they help or they don't. I haven't seen anyone really get worse with taking probiotics, which is a wonderful thing. But until we learn a little bit more about the gut microbiota and we're able to figure out, okay, what species are there? What species do you need more of? What do you need less of? It's going to be very tough to personalize probiotic recommendations.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's been my understanding as well, that they're very much species-specific. And we're really at the very tip of the iceberg in understanding how they work. Let me take one break, remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined by a wonderful registered dietitian, Colleen Webb. She specializes in gastrointestinal disorders. She is based at the Weill Cornell Medical College, I believe it is, where you also reach medical students as well as treat patients. Let's talk about some food additives that might not be known by consumers but could be having an effect on our GI system. So when somebody is going to the grocery store and you're instructing them to look at food labels, what are some red flags on that ingredient list that you say, you know, if you're having some GI discomfort, look out for this. Make sure you're not including that in your diet.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I have some general recommendations, and then I do have some more specific recommendations. So when I talk to our patients about a nice, healthy diet, then we're really talking about one that doesn't have too many food additives, right? And so I'll often use Michael Pollan's suggestions to avoid ingredients that you've never heard of, avoid ingredients that no ordinary human being would have in their kitchen, avoid ingredients that you can't pronounce. I mean, those are just some nice tips for people. And I do think that this is really important because especially with autoimmune diseases like inflammatory bowel disease, there is an environmental trigger and we just don't know what that environmental trigger is. And so my thought is, well, hey, I don't want to take the chances by introducing all of these food additives that are so new to our food supply. So that's kind of the general recommendations. As far as some more specific recommendations, I will suggest that they are buying something that is highly processed, that they do their best to avoid things like polysorbate 80 or carboxymethyl cellulose. These are emulsifiers that have actually been linked to what we call in the medical field increased intestinal permeability and and what other people might think of as as leaky gut. Mm-hmm. So in other words, they can compromise the integrity of the bowel. And then also carrageenan is one that I do recommend our patients avoid. A lot of our patients will consume things like almond milk because they have to avoid dairy for whatever reasons. And in those situations, I just do have them avoid that carrageenan and simply because it has been linked to colitis in animals. So whether or not that's applicable to humans, we're not sure. But you know, Melinda, it kind of comes down to what I said earlier is just why would we even take the chance with that?
0: Exactly.
1: I'm curious
0: to know if your particular medical center does fecal transplants
1: We do, mostly for research at this time or for recurring clostridium difficile.
0: Yeah. So that's
1: what it's it's really approved for right now. Now, we also are looking at the effect of these FMTs in people with ulcerative colitis. Mm -hmm. But aside from those two situations, we really are not doing them.
0: Yeah. Do you want to tell our listeners about any particular success stories or... Areas in your practice where you've had an aha moment, like, wow, this is so beneficial. I, I wish I could tell the world.
1: Oh, my gosh. Do we have days? Or <laughs> I guess I'll have to choose one or two. Right. Yeah. So let's see if I have time to quickly tell you about two or three different success stories. Great. So, you know, Melinda, everybody's so different when they come to me. And I really need to work with the patient, figure out how much do they want to use food and nutrition? What kinds of medications are they on? There really is no right or wrong approach to this. But I've worked with so many patients where they have inflammatory bowel disease. Let's take that as an example. And unfortunately, in many cases, people with IBD are told, hey, what you eat doesn't matter. And so what ends up happening is they eat a lot of the junkier food because it's lower in fiber and fruits and vegetables, which sometimes are a little bit tough for people with these conditions. And um, consequently, as you might imagine, if people are eating that kind of way, not eating fruits and veggies and eating a lot of white flour and sugar, that they don't usually feel that well. You know, they're tired, um, their skin breaks out, you know, you name it. And so sometimes with these patients, all I will do is work with them to show them how they can, in fact, include fruits and vegetables in their diets. Maybe it's through smoothies or soups if necessary, if they need to just decrease some of that roughage. And then we really spend a lot of time on decreasing their intake of added sugar. And sometimes just that, just kind of working towards a healthier dietary pattern based on everything that we have learned, sometimes that makes them feel amazing. Mm-hmm. So I have so many different situations where it's just been a little bit, for lack of a better word, really just kind of cleaning up the diet a bit. Mm-hmm. A few other examples. I actually have been amazed by what I have seen with the mediator release testing and leap therapy for food sensitivities in my patients. And i if you'd asked me this three or four years ago, I would have said, what? Oh, no, I'm not doing that. I was such a skeptic. And with these GI issues, in many cases, people are not always getting better. And so we do try to think outside the box a little bit. And I had a patient with ulcerative colitis who had been on Remicade, came off of Remicade. Uh, The doctor wanted to put him back on Remicade. He didn't want to go back. You know, Remicade really does suppress the immune system. There's all kinds of potential long-term side effects. And he said, please, I'll do anything. And she said, okay, well, you get one month with Colleen. See what you can do. And we ended up doing the media release testing for the food sensitivities, and he stopped bleeding in three days. And consequently, you know, the doctor has started recommending this to her patients, and we've seen similar success stories. So I would say the, the LEAP MRT as well as the just cleaning up the diet can be tremendously helpful, and you're just naturally cleaning up the diet anyway if you do an approach like the media release really test. And if I have time for one more, I'll tell you, but you tell me, do I have time for one more?
0: Well, I want to stop you right here, actually, because I'm itching to ask you a question, and I have on my homework sheets here in front of me that you are a certified LEAP therapist, who uses mediator-release testing. And if you would be so kind as to just let our listeners know what this is.
1: Absolutely. So this is a test that looks at food sensitivities. It's very unique, though, from some of the ones that exist out there. And it looks at about 120 different foods and 30 food chemicals. And one major way that food can impact disease and inflammation is depending on how the immune system responds to it. And so this is a blood test where a person's blood is paired with different antigens from these foods, and depending on how reactive someone is to this food, then that will determine how many mediators are released from the circulating cells. And um, there's actually great videos online. You can can see it on the nowleap.com website or, or also on my website or other LEAP practitioners to kind of take you through that a little bit more to show how the the degree of reactivity is determined. But then what we do with that information is really what gets people better. It's it's not just saying, oh, here's a list of food and avoid these for the rest of your life. That's really not it at all. In fact, food sensitivities change. Instead, it's the nutrition protocol based on those test results that's really interesting. So we take those test results and we create a personalized phase 1 through 5 elimination diet where we are eliminating those foods that we our patients reactive to, but then we're also eliminating foods that were not tested just in case people were reactive to those. And the first phase is the most restrictive, but usually around 10 to 14 days after that first phase, people tend to feel incredibly well.
0: Wow. And then
1: from there, we continue to, to reintroduce. Yeah, Melinda, it's, it's really just been an incredible addition to our practice.
0: Yeah. And like you, I first saw this and thought, mm, I'm skeptical, and yet the elimination diets have been used for years. It sounds like this is just more of a fine-tuned elimination diet and investigation. Would that be a good way to describe it?
1: I think absolutely, yes, and just a lot more personalized, which is really nice, and I think just having that data for patients is tremendously helpful, too, to have something like be able to look at a sheet of paper and say, okay, like, this is me, this is, I'm tired of these blanket recommendations.
0: Yeah. If people want to learn more about mediator release testing, they can go to your blog site. Is that where you've written about it?
1: I might have written a little bit about it in the blog, but I think probably even better would be to go to my website, which is the com. Or also, uh, there's really... Susan Link is a, a LEAP therapist who's actually created a number of YouTube videos uh, where she does a very good job taking people through what this test looks like and, and why it works.
0: Okay. I will be sure to provide links to both of those sites. So it's Colleen Webb, and that's Webb, W-E-B-B, nutrition.com. And then do you have Susan Link's website available
1: For Susan Link, so her last name is L-I-N-K-E. Okay. And I think she's actually just SusanLink.com.
0: Okay. Well, I will find it and I will make sure that that's available for our listeners because I think that so many of us, for whatever reasons, environmental variables, our stress lifestyles and our compromised diets with so much processing, I think it has led to a lot of people not feeling well, so we want to make sure we give them as many tools as possible. We've got time for another success story. Would you like to share it?
1: Yeah, actually, I would love to share it. So earlier, I had talked a little bit about the specific carbohydrate diet. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's when we were talking about some other dietary approaches for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So this is the one that eliminates grains and some of these other complex carbohydrates like sugars and Another diet that, that I was a huge skeptic about. I mean, you know, we obviously want to make recommendations as much as possible that, that are based on really terrific science. But what I've learned is that we also need to use our clinical experience and, and make recommendations based on our observations and practice-based medicine. So with the specific carb diet, I've actually started using it for some of our patients who have this small intestinal bacterial overgrowth that just is not responding always to the medications or to the traditional dietary approaches, like maybe just cleaning up the diet or the low FODMAP diet. And something I didn't mention earlier, but when people are tested for SIBO, they really should be tested to see whether or not they are hydrogen or methane producers. And for our methane producers, they often just don't respond quite as well. And so kind of just on a whim, and I think that I'd shared this case study too at that nutrition conference in Boston, but I started using the specific carb diet for our methane-producing bacterial overgrowth patients with constipation. And it's the first time for many of these patients that they were able to go to the bathroom regularly, which is pretty incredible. And one patient in particular, she also has a history of epilepsy, and she was having these auras and as soon as she started the specific carbohydrate diet, not only was she going to the bathroom regularly, but she has not had another aura, and it's been about three years or so.
0: You did share that story. It's remarkable. Unfortunately, we are out of time, but I want to direct people to your website, www.eatforyears.com. You talk about magnesium also in helping to promote regular bowel movements. You talk about the risks that people have when they are on proton pump inhibitors or acid-suppressing medications. I think this is another red flag for people to be aware that their diet may need some fine-tuning and that Mm -hmm. it puts them at risk. In closing, I want to thank you so much, Colleen, for being my guest I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And I want to, again, remind our listeners that we have been speaking with Colleen Webb, a fellow registered dietitian specializing in gastrointestinal disorders. We'll provide a link to her website. Thank you, Colleen. You're fantastic.
1: Melinda, thank you so much for having me.